Okay. Um, so today we are closing off our Big God series. Um, and to do that, we are going to look at the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God. Okay, so turn with me to Proverbs 8, starting in verse, um, verse 22. That's where we're going to start. Okay, um, and I'm going to read our passage for us, and then we'll pray, and then, um, and then we'll jump in. I think you'll be proud of me. I managed to write a sermon that is not like 8,000 words, so <laughs> hopefully it'll be a little shorter than usual. Um, but yeah, Proverbs 8, verses 22 through 36. Look up when you get there so I know. Proverbs 8, 22 through 36. Okay, let's do this. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that you would bring us alive to it, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be shining light into our minds, that we might understand your word and treasure it, that it would be sweet to us. I ask that you would help us see the grandness of your wisdom um, and how it accords with all of who you are. And um, in this, from this big picture of, of your wisdom, I pray that we would be transformed, that we would be different, that, that we would desire wisdom deeply and that we would seek it out in your word. I pray that you would humble us in this time um, help us to, to enjoy you and your word, and may all of it be uh, to the great end of your glorious grace. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, what does it mean that God is wise? When you think of wisdom, you might think of making good choices, for example. When I think of wisdom, um, I think of my mom, who every time I would go out with my friends in high school would say to me, Make good choices, make wise choices, don't do anything I wouldn't do. 
I'm sure that y'all have heard that from your parents too. And unfortunately, I can think of many, many, many times that I did things that I know my mom would never do. For example, the time when I started a 12-page paper the night before it was due in my second year of college at USC because I thought that I knew, I thought I knew what I was going to write on and I thought that I, didn't, um, I wasn't going to have a hard time writing it. I was very, very wrong. That was a horrible day. I pulled it off, though. <laughs> Not wise. Or the time I chose to play video games instead of studying and then woke up the next morning on the couch realizing that I was an hour late for an exam. Or the many days when I would get the fateful message, the fateful message in a group chat that said, study sesh at my place, anyone? And I would pack up my bags and head over thinking, wow, we're going to be so productive. Wrong. Very wrong. Or the nights when I would be in bed at 11 p.m. watching anime and I'd tell myself just one more episode, just one more, until all of a sudden birds are chirping outside my window and it's bright outside. Wow, all of my foolish decisions revolve around poor self-control. Guys, do not be like me. I definitely have done a lot of foolish things in my life, um, and I've definitely had a lot of, of growing to do in the area of practical wisdom, and I'm sure that you have too. But in contrast to our wisdom, or our lack of it, what is God's wisdom? What does it mean that God is wise? And how does God's wisdom affect the way that we live? Today, we are going to dive into the attribute or perfection, the perfection of God's wisdom. I like the word perfection um, better than attribute, and I'll explain why later. Um, but we're, we're going to look at a passage, this passage, that may read a little bit weird. It might be a little bit peculiar to you at first, but I think it's very helpful for us in thinking about God's perfection of wisdom and how it applies to our lives. So here's my initial definition of the perfection of God's wisdom. It's in your notes. It's God's perfect knowledge of how to act so that he will accomplish his goal, which is to glorify himself. God's perfect knowledge of how to act so that he will accomplish his goal to glorify himself. And foundation, or to, I guess to say it first, to say it even more simply, um, the wisdom of God, the perfection of the wisdom of God is that he never messes up. God never makes mistakes. In all that he has ever done, in all that he ever will do, he will always perfectly succeed in doing that which brings him glory. And foundational to this definition are two theological assumptions or realities. The first is that all that God is and does is for his glory and rightfully so, because he is the most important, the most central and essential reality of anything, everything, ever. And the second assumption is that God getting the glory that he deserves is always what is good for us and for the world. God getting his glory is always what is good. As beings created in relation to him, in dependence on him, and made for reliance on him, Whatever is good for the glory of God is ultimately what is good for us. So those are the two assumptions that kind of undergird 
our definition of God's, of God's perfection of wisdom. So um, that's our definition, that God's perfect, it's God's perfect knowledge of how to act so that he will accomplish his goal to glorify himself. And I want you to kind of keep that in your brain as we go through the passage and like stew on it, chew on it, look back at it if, you ever, if I ever say God's wisdom you know, and you don't remember what I mean. Um, so our passage that we read, it comes from the introduction of the book of Proverbs, where King Solomon, the great wise king, brings wisdom alive and, he, and makes her to speak in beautiful poetry of her preeminence and her importance. And we're going to see from her words that God's wisdom permeates everything that he does. And as you'll see, there is both a comfort, but also an urgency in this perfection of God. There's both comfort and urgency. And our key idea is God is all wise and you are accountable to that wisdom. God is all wise and you are accountable to his wisdom. So let's jump in. Point one, God is wise. God is wise and always working according to his wisdom. God is wise. Um, so first, subpoint point A, um, let's start um, before we get to the text to, by giving some context um, uh, for the book of Proverbs. So like I said, it's written by King Solomon, the son of David and the third king of Israel. And you might know from Sunday school that Solomon was gifted with abundant wisdom from God. And this book of Proverbs is the collection of that wisdom given to us in inspired scripture. So given that Solomon was a king, and one day his offspring would rule the kingdom of Israel, Solomon wanted for his own son to walk in wisdom. And um, for that purpose, he wrote this book of Proverbs as an exhortation um, and instruction to the ways of wisdom so that his young son could be a faithful ruler unto God, a faithful and wise ruler, honoring the Lord in all of his ways. Okay, so Proverbs as a book divides into these two parts. The first one, chapters one through nine, are these introductory poems that encourage and call Solomon's naive son to embrace wisdom. And then the actual Proverbs start in chapter 10, where Solomon starts to explain the principles that accord with discernment and skillful living. So the passage that we're studying today comes in the introduction, into the introductory poems. And in these opening chapters, King Solomon gives this invitation to his son to to heed his instruction and listen, because the one who finds wisdom is blessed. And the way that he shows the beauty and blessedness of wisdom is by personifying her. You might know from English class that personification is a literary device in which a writer causes an inanimate object or concept to speak, act, or exist as if it were a real person. So Solomon does this to wisdom to show his son and us as readers how enrapturing, how life-giving, how beautiful, and how precious the wisdom of God is. So understand as we hear wisdom speak that it's not as if wisdom is like this real living thing, um, like a, a being or a spirit or something, but this is Solomon's way of poetically showing the great beauty and value of wisdom. So hear, um, Here Solomon um, explained this earlier in chapter three. He says, 
in verse 13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding for the gain from her, personified as, as, a, as a woman, is better than gain from silver and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare to her. Long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her are fast, are, hold her fast are called blessed. So in listening to Solomon's words in these chapters, the reader is offered all of the riches of wisdom, the riches of skillful living. And then in the chapter of our passage, we hear wisdom speak for herself. Verse one starts, does wisdom not call? Does, does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights besides the way at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud, to you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. So wisdom speaks up to call the foolish, the young, and the naive to heed her words. And she has so much to say about her worth. But then in our passage, she says something peculiar. Look at verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, wisdom says, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. This is our first subpoint. God's wisdom is his essence. God has always had wisdom. So wisdom speaks up here and beckons us to call our minds all the way back to before Genesis 1, 1, when in the beginning of time, God created the heavens and the earth. Wisdom says that she was there. Wisdom was always there with God. The perfect application of knowledge in order to bring himself ultimate glory was the foundation upon which God made all things. Wisdom claims to have been there from the start. Before the most basic components of God's created order, the depths of the sea, before the mountains and the hills, before the fields, or even the first of the dust of the world, wisdom was there. By saying that she was before all of these things, wisdom claims to be the governing principle for creation, and the pattern by which God made all things. Wisdom underlies it all. And while everything else created is outside of God's being, the metaphor of wisdom being brought forth in this passage, and specifically in verse 24, implies that his wisdom flows directly from his being, from his essence. The essence of God is the wisdom of God. And this is why, um, like I said, I, I like to use the word perfection 
to describe God's wisdom um, instead, of, instead of attribute. Um, the word attribute, I think, kind of implies that there are parts to God, that, um, that, that, there, that you can separate him into different things. But God does not have parts. You and I have parts, like, like we have fingers and heads and hearts and personalities. But unlike us, God does not have parts. He isn't made up of anything. He is not made up of his attributes of goodness, his love, his infinity, his eternality, his sovereignty, his holiness. Instead, all that he is, he is at once. And all that he is, he is fully. There is no development or growth in him. He is fully realized. And he alone has ultimate unity in and of himself. And this is called the doctrine of simplicity. When theologians say that God is simple, they're not saying that he's easy to understand because he surely is not easy to understand. But what they mean is that he doesn't have parts. And this matters because all that God is comes to us at once. All of God's perfections come with his wisdom. So his sovereignty, his eternality, his goodness, his infinity, his holiness, his justice, his love, everything that he is comes together. So when God is wise, he is infinitely so. When God is wise, he is perfect in his wisdom. When God is wise, he is sovereignly wise. He is lovingly wise. He is eternally wise. He is infinitely wise. He is justly wise. He is righteously wise. He is unchangingly wise. There can be no division or compoundedness in God. He is not the sum of his parts. And all that he does necessarily involves all of his perfection. I love how Pastor Eric's favorite theologian, Augustine, described God's simplicity. He says, for God to be is the same as to be strong or to be just or to be wise. And to be whatever else you may say of that simple multiplicity or that multiple simplicity, whereby his substance is signified. That which is justice is also itself goodness. And that which is goodness is also itself blessedness. Every perfection of God, Augustine says, is identical with God's essence and identical with his other perfections as well. Thus, the wisdom of God is the essence of God. And God has been wisdom in himself since before time began. But it's not that God simply possessed wisdom. He didn't just have knowledge about how to act to bring himself the glory that he deserves because he is wisdom. He also puts that knowledge into action. And this is the second subpoint in our notes. B, God created all things according to his wisdom. Let's read on in verse 27. When God established the heavens, I was there, wisdom says. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. Let's stop there. 
So in Genesis 1, we see action happening. God sets his world into motion, and it's by his wisdom that he does it. From the highest heights of the heavens to the deepest depths of the sea, God's wisdom is present in all of it. God's perfect intent to display his glory was at work in the setting of the skies above, the establishing of the seas below, and everything in between it by implication. All of it was to the praise of his glorious grace. You might recall in Genesis 1 and 2 that repeated phrase, and God saw that it was good. God looks at his creation and sees, declares that all of it is good. God worked so thoroughly according to his wisdom principle that it was as if wisdom was laboring beside him as his workman, verse 30. And their goal was a beautiful world crafted in care that reflected and displayed his glory, his might, and his matchless perfections. A world that God could call good as he is good, beautiful as he is, orderly and logical as he is, all according to his perfection. Verse 28, the sky is made firm in its place according to God's wisdom. We have no need to worry that it will fall. The sea has its limits. It doesn't go beyond what is good according to God's wisdom. Verse 30, the foundations of the earth are marked out according to what God has said is good. All of creation is made according to the principle of wisdom, and it cannot transgress it. Now, in our worlds, we see a lot of broken things. But even post-fall, all of this is still true. Wisdom is still the first principle that guides God's creation. All of it, from skies to seas to birds and dogs, from the Rockies to the Niagara Falls, all of it screams his goodness and his wisdom. And I'm sure that you, you know this. You've gotten glimpses of it everywhere. And, and the, imperfect, the perfect intentionality, the purpose and care and genius of creation catches our attention all the time from the smallest things to the biggest things. It's that feeling of gazing up at the, the peculiar roundness of Half Dome in Yosemite as it towers over you, reminding you of your smallness before the immense God of the universe who spoke that mountain into existence with a single word. That's being captured by God's wisdom. It's that feeling of marvel when you study biology and see the deep complexity of the created world from mitosis and mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, in the trillions and trillions of, of cells that make up your body to the 66,000 miles of arteries and veins and capillaries that run through your body to pump blood. That is being captured by God's wisdom. Or how about this? I really, I've been thinking about this one. I don't know why. Um, have you ever considered the axis of the earth, like the tilt that it rotate, orbits on, rotates on? So God has made the earth, as it orbits around the sun, to be slightly tilted at a 23.5 degree angle. And because of this, the effective sunlight at any place on the surface of the earth always changes throughout the year. 
So because the axis of the earth is tilted with respect to the perpendicular, or to the perpendicular, um, to the plane of the earth's orbit around the sun, different points of the surface of the earth receive more or less sun throughout the year. So consider the hypothetical situation that earth was just straight up as it orbited around the sun. So there's the sun and the earth is just going like this, straight, not at its 23.5. So if that were true about the earth, there would be no seasons. And the light of the sun would always just hit the surface of the earth in the same measure, and the places by the equator would be just hot all the time, um, while the poles would be really, really cold and frigid and really sad and gloomy with very little light. And, there, and because of like, the lack of seasons, there would be no skiing in Mammoth and no crisp autumn breeze um, or changing leaves, no warm summer sun. Torrents would not be temperate. On top of that, our internal clocks would be completely messed up. Animals wouldn't know when to hibernate or have babies. Um, on, uh, 60 or 60% of the Earth's surface would probably be covered in ice, uh, making it completely uninhabitable and bringing the death of ecosystems. And then everybody would have to like, move closer to the equator and like, bunch into 40% of the Earth um, to live in tropical climates. And that includes animals. Im like, imagine all of the animals of the world um, swarms and swarms of eagles and squirrels and horses and alligators and bees um, and, and pandas all just migrating like crazy into the habitable areas of the world. Um, and, and that would cause yeah, ecosystems to die and plants and animals would go extinct, um, all just because of this like, 20 degree axis change. God made that. God made the, or he intentionally chose a 23.5 degree axis to enable the shifting complexity and the beauty of, this, of his world to be filled with life and seasons and diverse beauty. And if it were any other degree, the world as we know it would be impossible. Praise God for his beautiful, intentional, wise design of the earth that many other factors along with the axis of its tilt provide the perfect environment for his creation to thrive in and to give so much glory to God and its beauty. Isn't that incredible? All of the created order accords with God's wisdom, and it is an awe-inspiring thing to see. But consider this. If God created by his means of his perfect wisdom in the beginning. And if he himself is outside of the bounds of time, never changing and only existing at once for all of eternity that we experience, does that perfect wisdom not also extend to every moment of your life today? Consider your life. In God's wisdom, he has made you to be alive in the year 2022. He wisely designed your families and your parents. He chose what school you would go to, the people you would cross paths with, what hobbies and what interests you would have. He has purposed that you would be part of this church, 
with these people. He has purposed that at this church, you would hear the truth of the gospel preached, that you would come to know Jesus Christ, and that, Lord willing, you would trust him, that you would hear the good news of his gospel, that Christ came to save sinners like you and me. He has designed these particularities of your life, the things that bring you joy, the things that hurt, the things that burden and that frustrate you today. And all of it, because God has created and only ever works according to his perfect knowledge of how to act, all of it is going to work so perfectly together to result in God's glory because he's ordained it and because he can't mess up. Have you considered how all of your life results in God's glory? How could that be? Remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis? It seems from the outside that Joseph had a really sucky life. Rejection from his family, slavery, imprisonment in a foreign land. But those circumstances that he faced, that God purposed, were just the building blocks of God's greater story. God brings Joseph through difficult family relationships, attempted murder by his brothers, subsequent slavery and abduction to the foreign land of Egypt, servitude and imprisonment there, dream interpretation for Pharaoh, years of separation from his family, and hard work under Pharaoh, all to bring him to a point of power so that he could be the means of survival for the people of Israel when famine struck. God played the long game in Joseph's life, wisely working like a genius storyteller to piece after piece, bringing ultimate good for him. And even when so many of those pieces were moments of suffering and sin against Joseph and loss, God still accomplished it. We see that so beautifully stated in in Genesis 50, verse 20, when Joseph himself says, as for you, you meant it. You meant evil against me. He's speaking to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. All the evil that his brothers could commit against him and all the difficulties that Joseph faced in Egypt because of it were all ordained and allowed by the all-wise God. And it was the part of the greater it was part of the greater tapestry of God's plans to save Joseph and his family and then all of Israel. There's, there's proof in Joseph's life. But even more than Joseph's life, consider Jesus' life. That the God of the universe himself in Jesus took on flesh and became a helpless baby in a sad town that nobody knew. Right after being born, the king straight up tried to kill him. He had to live in the limitation of human flesh for over 30 years, feeling weakness and pain and temptation. He was mocked and reviled and made fun of. He was hated and rejected in his years of ministry. And when he was arrested, his friends 
abandoned him and left him for dead. And finally, on the cross, he was despised by the world, humiliated, shamed, and tortured, crucified to death as he bore the whole weight of God's wrath upon himself. Jesus, fully man, fully God, suffered through the most horrific death in all of history. But it was through his death and through his suffering that God brought eternal life to everyone who would believe in him through his resurrection. There was an ultimate goal. And all that Jesus' enemies and Satan intended for evil against him, God purposed for ultimate good. God designed Joseph's life. God designed Jesus' life. And God has designed your life. And God makes no mistakes. You are not a mistake. I know that for many of you, you have felt that way or you do feel that way, that you're messed up, that you have messed up or that you feel different and ugly and weird and so other when compared to to people that there's no way that you're not a mistake. You can't help but feel that God has somehow messed up when he made you. And what can I say to that except it's, it's just not true. It's a big fat lie. The doctrine of the wisdom of God says exactly the opposite. If God knows how to perfectly bring glory to himself, and if he perfectly puts that knowledge into action by his sovereign decree, then if you were a mistake, you would not exist. If wisdom was there when God created mankind, then we have no right to say God messed up when he made me. God can't mess up. And what you're probably feeling is is the curse of sin, the groaning and the frustration and pain of being a sinner living in a sin-cursed world. But even that pain is purposeful. Even that is meant to draw us to relationship and dependence on God. It's, It's God's way of drawing us to himself and helping us rest in him. You are not a mistake. God created you with wisdom. God crafted you in his likeness with precious dignity and worth, and he wants you to rejoice in belonging to him. And at the same time, the circumstances of your life also are not mistakes on God's part. God is sovereignly in control, and he has designed, ordained, and allowed things in your life to bring him ultimate glory, which is always the best thing for you too. Have you ever been tempted to think, God is wrong to put me through this. God is wrong to allow this in my life. And what does God, what does wisdom have to say in response to that accusation? She says that it's exactly the opposite. She says that God has created and worked only ever according to what brings him glory, to what is right, what is good. God has not messed up your life. Even when the sin of others or when your own sin makes it feel like everything is wrong, even when the suffering and the difficulty of your circumstances scream at you that God has messed up, he is working to redeem your life and all of it for your glory. Remember the doctrine of simplicity that God doesn't have parts? What a comfort simplicity is partnered with with wisdom. God's wisdom is always partnered with his love. 
God's inability to fail in glorifying himself is always partnered with his absolute goodness. You never have to doubt that his wisdom is for you. It's wisdom and sovereignty, wisdom and goodness, wisdom and holiness, wisdom and justice, wisdom and immutability, wisdom and omnipotence, wisdom and infinity, wisdom and love. And so when you're confused about how whatever is going on in your life accords with God's wisdom, the scriptures show you that you can trust that whether through your prayer you get an answer or not as to why, God is good, he is wise, and he's always caring for you. Theologian Mark Jones puts it like this, very often we find ourselves as Christians wondering why God does something in our lives. We can't fathom his purposes, but if we affirm his infinite wisdom, then we can humble ourselves in the midst of his providential workings in our circumstances. We lack his wisdom to make perfect sense of all that he does. Knowing that he possesses such wisdom allows us to trust him and entrust our situation to him, even in the direst of circumstances, end quote. So our conclusion from this subpoint is that everything in life happens according to God's perfect knowledge of how to act in glorifying himself. But it doesn't end there. God's perfect action according to his wisdom also garners a certain response. Subpoint C, let's finish verse 30 and 31. I was daily his delight, wisdom says, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. The response to God crafting creation with wise perfection is delight. God delights in wisdom and wisdom rejoices in God's creation, specifically in how God made his world to be inhabited by people Having a world fit for mankind and filled with people makes God happy. And so seeing wisdom rejoice in God's creation and God rejoice in what he's done makes us ask the question, do I rejoice in God's wisdom? Delighting in God's works and the perfection with which he performs them is good for us. John Calvin said that there is not one blade of grass and there is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. All of creation screams his glory and it's all made for our rejoicing. But do you rejoice? Does God's wisdom in his creation and our lives make us rejoice? Do we we have time to marvel and enjoy his wisdom? It's my encouragement is to slow down and rejoice in the intricacies of God's wisdom all around you, both in creation, but also in what he's ordained in your life. For example, when, when the next time you go to the ocean, look out on the water and think of all the millions of creatures that fill those waters. From the smallest krill to the great whales of the sea, God has created all of it to proclaim his glory. When you see the plants of your garden, consider the ecosystem that surrounds and fosters the growth of your plants. 
the worms and bacteria and insects that process soil and gives nutrients to your plant to be strong, the energy of the sun that filters into chlorophyll and, and does all of photosynthesis that I don't understand. Marvel at the things that God has designed to work together so perfectly so that the beauty of, of things like plants could grow and show God's glory. Consider and marvel at the wisdom of God who has expressed his creative genius in giving his likeness to people that you see when you walk down the halls of your school and see lots of different faces and lives and stories and experiences that each person has come through and the diversity of their loves and passions, the complexities of their thoughts, all of whom, even in their diversity, reflect the precious image of their creator. All of it is purposed for our awe and wonder and rejoicing at God. Okay, but there's more to wisdom than awe and wonder. Wisdom has shown us how she has been there with God since the beginning of time, but she has something else to say. This is point two. You are accountable to God's wisdom. Let's read on in verse 32. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are the ones who keep my ways, hear instruction, and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Our passage not only offers comfort and awe, but invitation and rebuke too. Listen to me, wisdom says. God is wise and he makes wisdom available to us. He teaches us how to be wise through his words, so we have to listen. We're called to live in accordance with his wisdom, with what God through the Bible has told us is how to live a good life. And the key word here, I think, is blessed. What the Bible calls blessedness, we might also call happiness. The result of walking in alignment with God's wisdom is happiness. It's rejoicing. It's joy. Do you want to be happy? Follow wisdom. Listen to Lady Wisdom. Seek her out. Do not neglect her. Blessed is the one who listens to wisdom. And this is not just an invitation to happiness. It's, it's an urgent warning at the same time. Finding wisdom results in not just happiness, but life. And if in verse, look at verse 36. If you reject wisdom, you will injure yourself. Rejecting God's word is your path to pain. If you reject wisdom, you show that you hate it. And if you hate wisdom, then you naturally will love death. This is the one uniting theme of the book of Proverbs, that the path of wisdom leads to life, but the path of folly leads to death. Listening to wisdom is a matter of life or death. So to sum it up, follow along with the logic of Proverbs 8 with me. God is all wise. He knows how to accomplish his ultimate goal, which is to glorify himself. God created all things according to his perfect wisdom, including you and me. 
Because God created you and me, and because God perfectly knows how to act to accomplish his goal, which is to glorify himself, he knows how you, as his created being, is to, are to live in such a way that accomplishes his goal, which is to glorify him. Therefore, you must receive wisdom from God. You must learn how to live skillfully for the purpose of glorifying God. If you receive wisdom from God, you will find life and favor. But if you reject wisdom from God, you will find death and rejection. That's the conclusion of, of Proverbs 8. You will hurt yourself and love death. So for example, when God says that sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, lust and homosexuality are all sins, perversions of what he has intended for human sexuality and not glorifying to him, then you must listen to him. Otherwise, you will hurt yourself. When God says to honor your parents by submitting to their authority and obeying them, or when he says not to show partiality or favoritism to people, you must listen to him. Otherwise, you will hurt yourself. When God says that cheating and stealing and lying are all acts that displease him, you must listen to him. When God says drunkenness and debauchery are sins, you must listen to him. When God says you shall have no idols before me, meaning that you, you can't love anything more than you love God, including money, awards and accolades, friendships, relationships, what people think of you, music, video games, pleasure, knowledge, school, education, comfort, even if those things are good things, you must listen to him. Otherwise, you will hurt yourself. God, in his wisdom, knows what is best for you. He made you. God has told you in his word what true living is. It's belonging to him and obeying him. And so to reject wisdom is to reject the path of true living and to choose the path of death. But to accept wisdom is to live in such a way that listens to him, pleases him, and brings honor to him. If the perfection of God's, God's wisdom is truly, as we've said over and over again, if it's truly perfect knowledge of how to act so as to produce his desired result, his own glory, then living in accordance that, with that wisdom is what is truly, truly what is good for us. So here's the bottom line. God is perfectly wise and you must live by his wisdom. And receiving wisdom from God and living by it is the path of life while rejecting it is the path to death. And some of you probably don't like this statement. Some of you probably are thinking, that's works-based salvation, Leighton. Some of you might be uncomfortable with the idea that listening to God's wisdom in the word leads to life and rejecting it leads to death. That may sound like, like life and death are very dependent on me. What happened to Jesus? But what is the one most famous line of Proverbs? Where does Solomon say that wisdom begins? Solomon says, the fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. Proverbs 9.10. Wisdom begins with fearing God. Fearing God is the doorway to wise living. And the path to life through wisdom is only available to the God-fearer. You might remember how I said a long time ago in a sermon a while back that what the Old Testament calls the fear of the Lord, we call faith. Throughout the Old Testament, God called mankind to fear him. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 1.12. But very few people did. And the consequences of that lack of fear of God were grave. But in Jeremiah 32, verse 40, God promised that he would put the fear of himself in the hearts of his people. And he does that by fully manifesting his wisdom to us in his son, the person of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.30. Jesus is the perfection of God's wisdom incarnate. And Jesus makes heeding the call of Proverbs 8 to listen to wisdom and follow possible through his life, death, and resurrection. Through faith, Christ plants the fear of the Lord in our hearts so that we can enjoy the path of wisdom and reject the path of foolishness. God is perfectly wise, and he has made wisdom available to you in Jesus Christ. He calls you to come and receive life and wisdom by repenting of your sin and entrusting yourself to him. Jesus says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you come and heed the call, he will not cast you out. You will live the path of life according to wisdom. But the question for today, for all of us, is have you accepted it? Have you heeded his call? For those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who believe in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, for the forgiveness of sin, and are submitted to him as Lord, all we have to do to get wisdom is to ask. James 1.5. That wisdom that he gives us is so, uh, he gives so generously. And that wisdom that he gives us is the path to full life and full joy, true blessedness, happiness that only comes in walking in alignment with God's wisdom. But for those of you who reject Christ, there will be no wisdom available to you. You will only ever Injure yourself. And at the end of the path of foolishness is only death. Have you heeded the call of wisdom? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see in the book of Proverbs two paths. One of life and one of death. The path of life, one, of, one marked by wisdom and heeding your word. 
and the other marked by foolishness and death. And so as we hear wisdom cry out, saying that she was there in the beginning, that she was the foundational principle according to which you created all things, and as we hear wisdom rejoice in all that you've done, may we first recognize that you cannot mess up, that you are wise, that you are good in your wisdom, that you are simple in your wisdom, that all of who you are comes to us at once in your wisdom. But may we also hear the urgent cry of wisdom when she says that those who walk the path of life will enjoy and delight in you, but those who walk the path of foolishness will only face injury, only face death. Pray that we would all consider if we have heeded that call. May we live lives full of your wisdom because we belong to you, because we have heard, because we have submitted ourselves to you, because we enjoy the blessedness of knowing your wisdom and your word. May we be honored in the way that we um, spend time in small groups reflecting and, and sharing. And I pray that even this time uh, would result in, in the praise of your glorious grace as you have always and always will be acting to accomplish your goal, which is to glorify yourself. We praise you for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.